you're listening to a Bellingcat Discord server stage talk titled Websites You Can't Access and How to Find Them. The talk features Alex Stefanescu, a Bellingcat fellow and Python developer for the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. Alex spoke to us about European Union website censorship laws and about tools and techniques for monitoring internet censorship. This stage talk was hosted by Giancarlo Fiorella on the Bellingcat Discord server on March 23rd, 2023. We're very lucky today to be joined by Alex Stefanescu, who is a researcher and a former Bellingcat Tech Fellow back in 2022. Alex is going to be talking to us about censorship of websites. She's going to be talking about um, how that looks in the EU. And I think also we'll hear some tips on maybe how to get around that sort of censorship, how to detect websites that are being censored that uh, governments don't want you to be looking at. Alex is also a Python developer for the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, the OCCRP, and she is also a human rights activist and an advocate for digital rights in Romania. We're very lucky to have you here with us today. Thank you very much for taking the time to be here with us, Alex. I will now pass it over to you. Thank you so much, Giancarlo. And I'm super excited to do this after the tech fellowship that I've um, gone through at Bellingcat. I felt really lucky to be part of it. It was a great experience and collaborating with the Bellingcat folks was really rewarding. Um, if my mic drops, let me know, just talk over me um, in case things go wrong, because sometimes the demo gods are on our side, sometimes they're not. <laughs> All right. So uh, the intro pretty much covers who I am. Uh, everything is absolutely true. Um, and I'm going to dive right into the material now. So uh, my fellowship with Bellingcat consisted of looking at internet censorship, more particularly internet blocking of certain websites. Um, the internet censorship um, subject has been discussed before, uh, mostly as discussing internet blackouts, so citizens no longer being able to use the internet at all for either a very short period of time, like during a protest, or a very long period of time, like during days or weeks. We've also heard about it in the sense of censoring certain applications. You might know that some countries have censored the Tor um, um, protocol. Some countries censor VPNs um, or certain messaging apps. And maybe the lowest rank uh, would be blocking certain websites. And we're going to dive into how that blocking is enacted in um, some more technical detail. So this talk is going to be a mix of uh, a bit of current events, a, just a tiny sprinkle of legislation, and then pretty much technical stuff. I really hope that by the end of it, everyone gets a little bit of enthusiasm about looking at um, blocked websites in their own countries and uh, looking at the tool that I will be talking about, which is called the UNI project. Uh, UNI is a great um, organization. I highly recommend them, uh, and I highly recommend the tool. All right, so why was I interested about this in the first place? You usually don't get interested into something like this unless you have to be. 
And in my case, what sparked my interest was the Russian war that started uh, in Ukraine in uh, February of last year. We've, uh, we've seen, um, once the war started, that uh, the Kremlin has spread several of its narratives online. Uh, Bellingcat has talked about this extensively. Um, but what we've also seen in the more technical realm was DDoS attacks, so denial-of-service attacks, distributed denial-of-service attacks, which is a type of cyber attack where you try to make a website completely unreachable by overwhelming it with requests. So you send so many requests that the server just cannot handle one more request. So whoever tries to get to that website after you started the attack can't reach it. Um, several groups that were ideologically, ideologically aligned with Russia have uh, tried to do this and succeeded to some extent. Um, they've claimed attacks on everything from the EU Parliament website to uh, government websites in countries across the EU, including Romania. Now, the EU reacted to this um, in many ways, but the one that we're interested in are two decisions published by the European Council. Uh, one came out in March, the other one came in June. Most of us heard about the first one, the one in March, and that one said, among other things, that broadcasting content from several, several Russian media is prohibited. Uh, the first decision prohibited uh, the broadcasting of Russia Today and Sputnik, and then the follow-up decision, the one in June, added to the list RTR Planeta, Russia 24, and TV Center International. The interesting thing about these prohibitions is that they have no expiry date. So when they were published, they just said, you know, by all means, these medias should not be allowed to broadcast neither on TV, radio, nor on the internet. The internet part was a pretty big deal for the internet as a whole because the internet has no borders. So when you, you, when, when you aim to block something online, it's not quite as easy as blocking a radio station or a TV channel. So how did the EU react? This is what I was most interested in. Um, different EU member states took different approaches, and the fact that there was no um, cohesion in how they handled it is a huge part of the problem, actually, because different approaches uh, gave mixed results, so we cannot say whether this uh, strategy really had the effect that it was aiming to have. Um, some EU member states passed the burden of deciding what to do directly to the internet service providers, the ISPs, and one example of this is Denmark, which turned to the ISPs and said, well, these are the decisions, uh, please enact them, without giving specific instructions of how to enact them. And then some EU member states um, compiled block lists and sent them to the ISPs, asking the ISPs to act on those block lists. And in this case, I can quote as an example, Romania, my home country, uh, but also Bulgaria and Poland. Now, um, some um, EU member states, when they published block lists, they included the media that was quoted in these decisions, but other EU member states sort of took the idea and ran with it. Um, the Romanian block list right now, because it's public, contains uh, 36,000 IPs. Now, the IPv4 address space is huge, so 36,000 doesn't even make up 1%, but it's still a whole lot of IPs. 
uh, the Bulgarian list contains 45,000 IPs. Now, um, the thing that was stated when these block lists were uh, published, or in the case of Bulgaria, which never published it when they were um, communicated, the, the line of reasoning was that these IPs have enacted uh, cyber attacks on critical infrastructure of the country, and so blocking them is an effort to protect the citizens, right? And in spirit, that's a very um, high and mighty goal. Now, in, in uh, practice, blocking websites is neither easy, and as we're going to find out, uh, it's not necessarily very effective at doing the things that these governments said they wanted to do, which was protect people from DDoS attacks and also adhere to the, to the um, decisions published by the EU. So if we wanted to block a website, how would we do it? We can, I'm going to quote uh, three ways and uh, then also quote how they can be bypassed, if they can be bypassed. And um, then we'll go on to talk about what ways were used in practice uh, in my research for, for the Bellingcat Fellowship and how you too can do this kind of research. So uh, the easiest way and the easiest to circumvent way actually is to block the IP. Uh, as you might know, every single domain like google.com has associated one or more IP addresses. And in fact, when your computer communicates with the website, it does not communicate directly with the beautiful URL that's in your URL bar. It communicates with the IP of the server. So before you get to a certain website, you have to find out its IP address. Um, also, it's worth remembering that many different websites can share the same IP address. This is the case for something called uh, shared hosting in, in the world of uh, domain hosting. Uh, so when a government wants to block a website or they want to ask their ISPs to block a website, what the ISP ends up doing is saying, if you want to get to this IP, I'm not going to let you. Um, it can see the IP that you're trying to communicate with because even though HTTPS, as we know, um, encrypts our entire communication content with a certain uh, website, the IP that we're talking to is public in the packet. So when our ISP sees the IP that we're trying to talk to, and it's a, let's say, blocked IP, the ISP can say uh, this packet does not pass. In the case of Romania in particular, this kind of blocking was enacted when um, the decisions were freshly published and uh, some ISPs tried to block everything connected to Russia Today and Sputnik. Now, Russia Today and Sputnik happen to have some Firebase domains. Firebase is a Google service. It's super useful for mobile apps and other apps. A lot of developers depend on it. Um, so the, some certain ISPs in the country block the IPs of the Firebase um, domains that Russia Today and Sputnik were using, but what they ended up doing was blocking access to Firebase itself for a lot of uh, Romanian citizens. Um, the block was very short-lived. As soon as people noticed, it was rectified, but it was still quite a bit of a blunder. So with IP-based blocking, it's super easy to circumvent. You can use a VPN, in which case your ISP will not see what IP you're trying to communicate. It will only see that you're trying to communicate with the VPN IP. Moving on, uh, the ever so slightly more sophisticated way is to try to block access to a domain. 
Um, in this case, what the ISP is going to look at is your initial attempt to communicate with the website when you're saying, um, hey, what is the IP of this particular domain? You have to find that out because our computers do not store an exhaustive list of all IPs and all domains in the internet. Um, you ask this question, what IP should I communicate if I want to communicate with google.com by making a DNS request? Your ISP can see the DNS request and it can block it or it can give a modified answer to your DNS request indicating to you to talk to an IP that that website isn't in fact hosted at. Now, if you're in a country that, for example, does legal blocking of casinos, which is very common in the EU, this is uh, one of the ways that that blocking is done. If you're in a country that does blocking of uh, copyright infringing material, this is also how that blocking is usually done. You're going to try to access a website that, let's say, you know, hosts um, copyrighted material, and um, you're going to get a page that says you're not allowed to access this website. Um, in this case, changing our DNS providers uh, can very easily circumvent this kind of blocking. Um, most of us use the default DNS provider provided to us by our ISP, but that's not mandatory. We can change it per device or in our router, in which case all of our devices are going to use a different DNS. Also, it's worth looking into things like DNS over TLS and DNS over HTTPS. Um, just a small technical bonus, DNS is not an encrypted protocol. So even though when we communicate with websites, we use HTTPS and encryption, when we ask what IPs those websites are hosted at, we don't encrypt that question. But DNS over TLS and DNS over HTTPS do encrypt that question. So that makes our communication ever so slightly more um, censorship resistant. Last but not least, uh, one of the more sophisticated ways of blocking access to certain websites is called SNI blocking. SNI blocking is possible because even though we knew as technologists that this would be a problem, um, it was collectively decided not to address this problem. And the problem stems from the fact that when we want to communicate with a website in an encrypted way, we start with something called a TLS handshake, which is us establishing the encrypted communication with the website. And in this TLS handshake, we publish the name of the website in clear text. So that means that even though our ISP can't see what we're saying, it can see who we want to say it to. Um, the field that this is published in clear text in is, is called the SNI, and that's why we call it SNI filtering or SNI blocking. Um, it's a very unfortunate state of affairs, but alas, this is uh, the best we got right now. Uh, in order to circumvent this kind of blocking, we would again need to use a VPN. Um, when I say use a VPN, you can also substitute that with using the Tor network. Uh, they're not directly equivalent, but in this context of being resistant to this kind of censorship, you can use either one. All right. Um, let me give you some, some very concrete examples of how this went down in different countries. So, for example, in Romania, uh, Sputnik was blocked at the DNS level. So when you would type uh, sputnik.com in your browser and you'd try to see that page, uh, what you would get is an answer from your ISP that said unauthorized. So it was a custom page created uh, by somebody. It didn't belong to Sputnik. 
And uh, you would see it because your ISP, instead of giving you the real IP of Sputnik, would give you a fake IP that they controlled. It's not a fake IP, it's a real IP, but it's the IP that the ISP controls. Uh, in the case of France, uh, when I tested this back in November, uh, Russia Today and Sputnik both were pointing to an IP called the loopback address, which is uh, 127.0.0.1. This is a standard IP on all machines. All machines believe that this IP refers to themselves. So if you try to get to a website and the DNS answers with this IP, you're not going to get anywhere. Uh, it's also a form of censorship. You can recreate these results. Um, for example, if you were in France right now and you wanted to recreate this, this test, what you could simply do is run a dig command, uh, digrussiatoday.com, rt.com, and you would see in the answer that the A record, which tells you where the website is hosted, would give you the IP uh, 127.0.0.1. Uh, this was true as of November 23rd. I'm not quite sure if it's true at the time when I'm talking or at the time that you're listening to this. All right, so this is the case that um, I was interested in um, how to track censorship, uh, how to see whether there are block lists published. Uh, I sent several FOIA requests to EU member states asking for their block lists. Uh, nobody gave me a block list, sadly, aside from Romania, which publishes the block list in a geofenced manner. Um, and um, all I was left with was trying to see and map out um, whether there were websites that were no longer um, accessible. In comes the Uni project. Now, Uni is a very lovely app. Uh, you can use Uni on your mobile, on your desktop. It's even a CLI tool, so you can use it from the command line. And what it does is <clears throat> it gives you a list of websites and of apps, like messaging apps, and it makes your device try to contact each and every one of those websites. Um, if you cannot contact it, so if, you, if, if Uni discovers it can't uh, reach that website, it makes note of that and goes to the next website on the list. The list that comes with Uni by default was, I think, compiled by Citizen Lab quite a while ago, but right now it has grown more and more and more, and it's quite a huge list. It does bear saying that um, Uni isn't without risk. So when you run an uni test locally, you c contact a whole lot of websites. Some of those websites might or might not be censored in your country, and you trying to contact them might or might not be uh, seen by the authorities as a red flag. So when you try to run uni from the first time, regardless of platform, it will explain this to you, and then it will ask you some questions to make sure you really internalize the risk. Right. Um, <clears throat> one more caveat here, if you want to try to use uni, is that you should not use it through a VPN. Again, this is going to be a very short uh, technical segment. I just want to explain why I'm saying this. So the point of Uni is to try to get to a website, right? And the point of censorship is to not let you get to that website. But censorship can only control um, the ISPs that um, respond to that government, right? So um, if I tried to get to, let's say, hypothetical example, bbc.com, and my government didn't want me to, 
It could only tell the Romanian ISPs not to, let, not to allow me to get there. But if I use the VPN, a VPN would allow me to access the internet, but I would go out through the, to the internet through another country, perhaps. That country might have different laws. That country might not be censoring the BBC. So if I run Uni through a VPN, Uni might give me fake results. Uh, more than that, <clears throat> even if I would run it uh, through a VPN that comes out in the same country that I'm living in, it could still give me fake results because um, most VPNs run their own DNS resolvers. So if there were DNS blocking in place, running Uni through a VPN might not catch it because instead of using the VPN, the, the DNS resolver of the ISP, the VPN is using its own DNS resolver. <clears throat> so a TLDR, if you want to run Uni, then run it in your own network. Um, once you run the tests, all the results are automatically uploaded and published online. None of your personal data is published, only the results are published. And aside from the results saying whether you could or could not access a certain website, they also give a little bit of debugging information, so context, <clears throat> to help you understand perhaps how the censorship is being done. Um, some results that say that you couldn't access a website might also be because the website is down. So always keep in mind that just because the results said you couldn't get to a website doesn't necessarily mean that it's censored, right? <clears throat> It might also mean that at the time when you're testing this, the website might be experiencing issues. All right, so um, the awesome thing about Uni is that if you install it as a desktop app or as a mobile app, the tests can be rerun on a schedule. You don't have to do anything in the background as you're working, the tests will just be run at some point in the day and the results are gonna be uploaded. <clears throat> This also means that if you see an anomaly or if you see a result that's worrying you, after the tests are run, you can go to the UNI website and you can search for your particular test result and you can link it to somebody. You're gonna see this in a lot of reports about internet blackouts and censorship online because they link back to UNI results. And in the UNI result, you're going to see, of course, the time when you tested, the domain that you tested for, but also you're going to see the network you tested from. Uh, and you can also see for that domain in that network, if perhaps before the domain was reachable, um, going back in time. The awesome thing is you can even make your custom lists. So, for example, you can make a list of a lot of websites that host uh, content related to activism or investigative journalism or just content that you're very interested in um, knowing is still online and you can test those lists continuously with uni which achieves two things one it tells you if those websites become unreachable suddenly but the second really important thing is that you build up data so all of your tests stay in the uni database and if something ever happens one year two years from now there's gonna be data from your tests that those websites were accessible today and the day before today and so on, which is really important in mapping out censorship and mapping out these kinds of, of um, blockings of websites. Uh, you can even make a custom list and send it to somebody as a link. And if they click on it, the list will just be um, deployed to their mobile Uni app and they can test against your list directly. 
the tests don't take too long. It's just a matter of minutes until they are done. And if your list is short, then it's going to be even shorter. Now, the default lists, the one that come with the Uni app, will test a bunch of websites. They'll also test messaging apps. So they'll test if Facebook Messenger is blocked, Telegram, Signal, WhatsApp. They will test if Tor is blocked, super important. Um, just as a very small aside, the Romanian uh, block list contains, when I first checked, it contained about 800 Tor exit nodes. And blocking a Tor exit node makes no sense, but that's just, a bonus fact. Um, the the Uni test list also checks whether VPNs are blocked, and it, in particular, it will check uh, RiseUp VPN and Siphon, and it will also do a middle box test. There are some older tests that are have been taken out of the suit, but you can see them on your web on the website. And the most important and awesome thing I think for an OSINT community is a part of the Uni website called. Uh, the Measurement Aggregation Toolkit, so MAT. Um, this is the part of the website that hosts all the results across all time on all the networks. So if you just type in a certain domain there, if the domain has ever been measured, you're going to find it in a UNI database and you're going to find the measurements. So you're going to find people testing whether that website is reachable in different networks. Um, all of the data you see there can be linked, so you can share this, you can include this in reports, and all the data that you generate when you test is also uploaded to the uh, MAT tool. So you can link against your own tests in, I think, a matter of minutes. They get published super, super quickly. Everything stays in the UNI database, so from what I know, nothing is deleted, and the database really is huge at this point. Uh, I'm super impressed with, with what they're doing. Um, yeah, so I highly recommend you check out the Uni uh, app. Uh, I highly recommend that if you feel safe doing so, you start running tests, you may compile your own list for interesting websites and generate data that might be useful down the line. Uh, keep in mind that if you access websites that um, are problematic in your country, your ISPs can see that you're accessing them, <clears throat> even if it's just to test them through, through Uni. Uh, what you can also do to dig in a little bit further is run dig commands locally on your computer to see what exactly the behavior of trying to reach a certain uh, URL is, um, but that's maybe a little bit beyond the scope of this discussion. Now, uh, I, I managed to see that some messages were saying that this got very technical very quickly. Uh, I still hope that some of the stuff I've said has sparked curiosity and enthusiasm. And I know I've come a bit uh, short on time, but I wonder if there are questions. If not, then maybe I can go into some more material. Yeah, we do have some questions. And uh, well, first of all, let me thank you for that talk. It was fascinating. I didn't know anything about this and the uni tool that you showed i was just playing with the mat one is really cool so uh thank you to uh white fox rices i think is the name for sharing the uh, link there to uni.org in the chat um so hopefully folks have had a chance to play with it already as i said i just took a look at the mat uh feature there that you talked about it's really cool thanks again alex uh if you have a question for Alex about anything that uh, she has just said, please go ahead and type it in the chat. I have a question here for you. Um, you. You answered it already, but I wonder if you can elaborate on it a little bit. 
this was a question from uh, Subtle Art of Murder and Persuasion. Hello. <laughs> Love the name. Um, thank you for listening. What percentage of IPs belong to the Onion service, such as Tor Exynos? I think you said for the Bulgarian data set, it was 800. Um, and I think you mentioned there I might... Uh, yeah, sorry. I think you, you might have mentioned that it was useless to block those, or you might have said something. I, yeah. Could you just elaborate a little bit more on, on what that means? What does it mean to block a Tor exit node, and why is that a smart thing to do or not a smart thing to do? Yeah. Um, I, I don't want to do uh, mathematics on the fly here. So to extract the percentage, it's 800, almost 800 Tor exit nodes out of a block list of 36,000 IPs. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> But the reason why it's it's useless, so to say, is um, well, Tor is seen by some people as a censorship uh, resistant tool, and by some people, Tor is seen as um, malevolent, no matter what. So it really depends on how you look at this. But if your if your stated purpose, as these authorities have stated, is to protect your citizens, then blocking Tor exit nodes really can't achieve that in a reliable manner because if somebody's using Tor as an entire system to do malicious things, there are a lot of Tor exit nodes out there and they're just going to exit through a different exit node and it's going to be a game of whack-a-mole for you to try to block all the exit nodes. And even if you do that successfully, then we also need to keep in mind that IPs are dynamic resources. They change all the time. Um, just because one IP belongs to a Tor exit node now doesn't mean it won't be sold or it won't be used for something else later on. You might end up doing something really silly, which is that maybe you're blocking an IP because it was used by a Tor exit node. That IP later on gets bought and is now in the hands of a hosting company and a very important website is hosted on that IP. So now nobody in your country can access that website and you have achieved Nothing. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, that, that was my reasoning for saying it's not really that useful to block Tor. Okay, that's very clear. Thank you for that, Alex. Um, I have a, a question here. And again, if you're listening, folks, and you want to ask a question, go ahead and type it in the chat. I am writing them down uh, while you do that, while you think about your question. I had a question as I was listening to your talk here, Alex. Uh, so I'm originally from Venezuela. And when I think about internet censorship, I think about Venezuela, and I think about China, and I think about North Korea. And I don't really think really up until you <laughs> gave the talk which again thank you for it it was really interesting I, I never thought about the eu or like what you know what we consider to be sort of democratic uh liberal democracies engaging in this kind of behavior so that got me to think about internet censorship and my question to you is would you say that internet censorship the the concept of internet censorship is a kind of a meeting ground where democratic governments and maybe more authoritarian governments are sort of like learning from each other and things that are happening in north korea things that are happening in Venezuela are being watched by like the EU and maybe they're they're saying hey we can implement that kind of thing there so would you say that that these different kinds of governments are maybe learning from one another um, uh, and again something that may be happening in North Korea is actually informing a decision that happens in Brussels maybe yeah um, there are maybe two ways to look at this one way is through our personal ideology which i'm going to leave to to the end but the other way is to look at legislation different countries different legislation in the eu at least we have a couple of very clear examples that have already resulted in 
um, internet censorship. One of them is copyrighted material, so the blocking of torrenting services. Um, and the other one is casinos. Casinos without um, the permission to function from an authority get blocked in some EU countries. Um, so to this extent, if there's a law saying why you're doing it, or if there's a decision by a court that says why you're doing it, that's based on evidence and that's based on a trial, then you can say, well, at least within the rules of this country, there is a legal decision to do so. Um, in the case that I mentioned, even though there is a, e a couple actually of EU decisions saying stop the broadcasting of this content, um, there's also a net neutrality law in the EU that basically says that the internet should be accessible in a uniform way. So if you want to get to a certain website, you should be able to do so. And it shouldn't be harder than getting to another website. So in spirit, uh, blocking um, without a mandate from a court contradicts the net neutrality law. Now, I am not uh, a lawyer, which is why I say in spirit, and this is my personal opinion. As for the technique of blocking, um, as we know, technology can be used in very beneficial ways, also very harmful ways. Um, so we are definitely seeing the same um, techniques used in governments that are incredibly enthusiastic about blocking certain services on the Internet. We're seeing the same kinds of techniques used in governments which we would call uh, liberal or democratic or depending on, on how we are inclined to talk about them, we're seeing the same techniques used. So um, it, we cannot say that um, there's a sort of agreement of we will never do this. If, if, if the legislation asks for it, we're going to do it. Mm. But what scares me is that we're starting to do it even without a mandate to do it, right? Mm -hmm. um, countries like Russia and China are developing something that we in the technical community called the splinter net. The splinter net means that they're blocking and they're containing their internet traffic to such a degree that, that if you were to sort of zoom out and look at all the connections of the internet, they are starting to form these islands that are becoming more and more separated because fewer stuff is going in, fewer stuff is coming out of there. So that's the splinter net. It's super worrisome that this is happening, also because of information not going in and out, and we've seen the effects of that, also because um, it, is, it is an infringement of the freedom of speech, again, in spirit. Even, even if in those countries it's legal to do this because they've passed laws to allow them to do it, uh, in spirit we can still argue it's a very damaging thing. And now, um, this also is a matter of what your personal ideology is, uh, how far you will go to defend uh, the freedom of expression, for example. Um, this is a discussion that will very quickly go into, oh, but freedom of expression also means freedom of disinformation to propagate, and that's an entirely different discussion. But to sum it all up, I don't think that internet censorship is the answer to any of, the, any of these questions. Mm. Thank you very much for that, Alex. We have uh, uh, many questions coming in now from uh, people listening, so thank you for those. And again, if you have any questions, just ask them in the chat. I am writing them down, and we'll get to them for sure. We have a question from Jimmy. Hello, Jimmy. Jimmy asks, Alex, can you share a case study article on censorship that features data from Uni? 
to better understand this capability. And I think Jimmy later clarified maybe a case that you worked on in particular, or one that you're uh, you know particularly familiar with, perhaps. Not to put um, you on the spot. I yeah, I have no report that includes data from UNI that I've worked on. Mm -hmm. I can share the links to the Romanian case studies mm. that I've published with an NGO in Romania, and you can just um, uh, put them through DeepL or Google Translate or your preferred translation service and read them. I could definitely share those in, in the chat, yes. Oh, thank you very much. But Thanks as for me, yeah, as for Uni, um, you can go to their website and they have a blog section right at the top and there are many, many, many discussions of internet blackouts and censorship that does feature Uni data right on their website. And Great. also there's a super, super interesting post very recently about the methods that are used in internet blocking. And it's super recent, so this is up-to-date information. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that, Alex. We have a question also from Logan Williams. Hi, Logan. Logan, of course, is a data scientist here at Bellingcat. And Logan says, hi, Alex. It was really nice working with you last year, and I'm so happy that you were able to do this talk. Some previous major internet outages, like in 2021 with Akamai, were caused by DNS service issues. Do attempts by ISPs to censor internet traffic through misuse of DNS potentially make the house of cards that is the internet less robust? Or is this an orthological, I'm sorry, orthogonal issue? Um, I don't really remember what happened to Akamai, but I can try to answer this uh, again in spirit. So... Sadly, uh, protocols like DNS and BGP, which are absolutely crucial to the internet working in the first place, have been drafted on a napkin, more or less. So they've been drafted at a time when the internet wasn't as complex as it is, is right now, and we didn't have a lot of the problems that we have right now. So these, these protocols aren't resistant to the kinds of errors and mishaps we're seeing right now. Um, you can do a lot of very dangerous stuff with DNS. Um, and a lot of very dangerous stuff with BGP as well. Um, if you remember, there was a moment when there, a very big DNS resolver, DNS, got a DDoS attack. So it was overwhelmed in the same way that we've seen uh, government websites overwhelmed last year uh, when they declared themselves partisan or sympathetic to the Ukrainian cause. Um, when that service was overwhelmed, when DNS was overwhelmed, we basically were lacking a DNS service globally, a DNS service that a lot of people used. So the internet became really hard to use for a while. Um, if this is the house of cards that you're referring to, then yes, definitely it is becoming more and more fragile. The more it, the, the cheaper it becomes to launch attacks, the more the house of cards is vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. And this is why we need... Um, initiatives that make these protocols that we rely on so heavily more resistant and more robust, right? Because at the end of the day, uh, it's a cat and mouse game. The attackers are getting uh, more savvy in how to break things, and it's becoming cheaper to break things, which is probably the most scary part of all of this. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that. Thanks for that question, Logan. And thank you, Alex, for that answer. We got another one here from I think I'm reading this correctly again. Whitfox Rices. Whitfox Rices asks, lots of websites are starting to prevent visits from IPs in a range of, uh, sorry, in a range belonging to VPNs. For instance, using ExpressVPN or a Windscribe or whatever, 
you visit a site and it refuses access until you turn off the VPN. Sometimes you can change VPN server locations, but often it's still unsuccessful. Is there a way of avoiding this? Can you recommend any techniques? Uh, this happens to me all the time with Disney+. Plus. Um, so, so Alex, uh, can you talk about that, please? That's a really good question. Totally applicable to daily life because I experience it every day. <laughs> Funny enough, I experience it too. Uh, I'm not going to name my DNS provider, but I do have a DNS on at all times. And I see this. I see this more in the sense of being asked to do CAPTCHA every single time I blink at the website <laughs> um, more than not being able to access the website itself. But the reason why I think these blocks are happening, and I can't talk about the website owners, uh, but I can assume why they're doing it, is because um, if, if you're trying to protect against nefarious activity, a lot of nefarious activity is going to try to shield itself through a VPN or through Tor. And so as a website, you can say, well, if you're coming through Tor or coming through a VPN from, a, from an IP range that I know belongs to a VPN, then sorry, not sorry, you're not coming in. Um, switching VPNs temporarily might help. Switching from a VPN to Tor might help. Um, trying to exit through a different country in the same VPN might help, but not really, because usually what gets blocked is the entire IP range that the VPN uses. So if they know one of the IPs, they probably know all of the IPs. So you can try, might not, might not necessarily work. So that, in that case, a website blocking you from getting to it is not the same um, as, as what, what we were describing earlier, but it is very, very annoying. Um, uh, yeah, I had, oh yeah, and, and the other thing uh, is that um, there are websites that will block you from coming in through Tor, but they do offer an onion service. Clear example, Facebook. Facebook will get very upset if you try to access facebook.com through Tor, but it does offer an onion service, which you, you can use through Tor. So um, you can also check if the website has an onion service. A lot of very big websites, especially news websites, are getting onion services. So if you want to access those through Tor, then just use the onion service. Great. Thanks for that. I think we're also, um, I don't know if this is confirmed. I've had this experience certainly over the last couple of days, and I know some of my colleagues at Bellingcat have as well. Uh, if you do a Twitter search, just a simple search on Twitter uh, with a VPN on, you're not getting results. It's been like that for me for the last couple of days. And we think maybe this is unconfirmed, so don't quote me. We think maybe it has something to do with them cracking down on, on people using the API. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, if you have a VPN on, you can't use Twitter effectively anymore. Um, I see Logan is typing, probably unconfirmed, but extremely likely. Okay, thanks. Uh, thanks, Logan. I, I knew I was um, misspeaking. Again, do not quote me. I'm not an authority on, on this or pretty much anything. Question here from um, Penser Bjorn. Uh, hello, Penser Bjorn. I'm not pronouncing that correctly. Alex, do you have information on how to measure a shutdown from inside the country? I think you talked about this, Alex. I mean, if you're in the country and you don't have internet access, how can you measure and what can you do? do so yeah imagine i guess you're in I, i've had folks this happened to in venezuela they've sort of lost internet connection they're not sure if it's because i don't know the servers melted at the ip at the isp or if they're being censored how do you do that if you don't have internet access can you do that if you don't have internet access that is a super hard question and a super painful situation um <laughs> thank you for the for the question 
Um, so if you don't have internet, does that mean you don't have internet via your home connection or does uh, cellular also not work? If you still have some shape or form of internet, you can also check um, services that publish whether internet outages are happening. I think Uni kind of publishes this on their Slack. They, they mentioned that uh, outages are happening in certain places, but I know for sure there are websites that say it on a semi-real-time basis. Um, if you don't have internet at all, so, you know, no internet at home, no Ethernet, no Wi-Fi, no cellular, no nothing, so a total internet shutdown, then I think you are very hard-pressed in getting out and getting information from the internet. Um, so measuring whether there's a shutdown is kind of impossible based on the fact that you can't go out in the internet. If you want to communicate, though, during an internet shutdown, there are apps that use uh, Bluetooth, Bluetooth meshes locally. So if you're close enough with people and you create the sort of network of Bluetooth-enabled devices, you can send each other messages. And... Um, Fun information, this also works in a plane. If you're seated very, very far away from your colleague, but close enough for Bluetooth to work, you can talk to them during the plane ride with a Bluetooth mesh messaging app. Oh, that's so cool. Wow. Okay. That's awesome. I, I had no idea that was, a, that was a thing. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, we have a question here also from Ircilo. So we have lots of folks now thinking about security and staying safe and, and, and how to do that. Um, a couple of questions on that. One from Ursilo here. Hi, Ursilo. Ursilo's asking, is there a way to make your own VPN? And if not, if a VPN provider decides to sell their data to a third party, how harmful could that be to the people who are using that VPN? Yeah, um, it, there is a way to make your own VPN. Um, it, I think that the m most uh, stable uh, software for this is WireGuard. I, did, I never made my own VPN, so I would not be able to walk you through it, but I know for sure that WireGuard is what people recommend. Uh, it is very stable software right now. Um, for that, you would also need hosting, so your VPN has to be on a server. I would not recommend having that server be a physical machine at your place because if you're thinking about getting a VPN, you probably don't want that VPN associated with you in the first place. So ideally have your server that will become a VPN in somebody else's network far away, right? Um, also, obviously, if it's in your place, it's going to use the same network you're trying to escape. So it defeats the purpose, really, other than experimentation. If you want to experiment, it's absolutely fine if your VPN server is your Raspberry Pi sitting next to you on the desk. So WireGuard and some secure hosting from a service that you trust. Um, and the problem that you quote about VPN providers selling data is super, super real, um, especially true for free VPNs, but not all of them, obviously. Um, but some VPNs do this. There have been studies that I can look up and link in the chat um, about VPNs doing this and about who they sell their data to and for what purposes. If you are worried about your um, identity being linked to your internet activity, this is extremely dangerous for you. So if you are in that situation, it would be preferable to use Tor, not a VPN. Um, you could look into more trustworthy VPNs or VPNs that have established a sort of reputation with human rights defenders that they are using those services and those services do not uh, sell their data or they protect their identities, or you can roll your own, exactly as you said. 
Great. Thanks for that. And we had a question maybe sort of leading uh, from, from this last answer here, Alex, if you're comfortable answering this, which trusted VPN would you recommend for use inside the USA? Just you, in the US, what VPN would you? <laughs> Could you want to answer that? Or It's a, it's a big responsibility, um, right? When people ask you, <laughs> how do I protect myself? It's a huge responsibility, but look, it's also worth if whatever I say, it's also worth looking into them yourself because a lot of these companies have at some point had to answer uh, court orders. If if you get the court order in the country where you operate, it's game over regardless of what you're doing, right? So I can tell you that personally, I use Proton VPN. I've heard Mulvad VPN being quoted as being pretty good. Um, but I'm not knowledgeable in the options and I, I don't look into this field regularly. I think I look into the screw-ups in the field more than I look into the success stories. So take it with a huge mountain of salt. Um, what I would also recommend is reaching out to uh, human rights defenders in your, in your uh, vicinity who have this problem and who have thought about it extensively and ask what they're using and why they chose those services. Also worth Googling if the company ever answered court orders and what those were about and what the context was over there. Answering a court order doesn't automatically make you an asshole because obviously the law mandates that you answer it in some shape or form. Thanks for that. And uh, since we're talking here about um, uh, alternatives, perhaps, to VPNs, um, there's a question from Sepulco. Hello, Sepulco. Good to see you. Sepulco asks, how much of a risk are malicious exit nodes when using Tor? So maybe can you explain what is a malicious exit node? And is that a thing that we should be worried about? I think I know what you mean. I'm going to assume you mean the fact that it is it is said that there are exit nodes operated by uh, malicious actors or intelligence services. I hope that this is what you're referring to, and it is a, a yeah, it's it's a definite risk that exists in the Tor network. Um, so the the exit node does not know your IP. It does, however, know who you want to talk to because the exit node is the link between your intention and the actual website. But between you and the exit node, there are two more nodes. So the exit node only knows the IP of the node that came before it. That being said, there are some fingerprinting techniques and some uh, OSINT or um, informed guessing that you can do to try to narrow down what the identity of the initiator was. Uh, so in the Torque network, this is a definite risk. Um, that being said, I, I, I don't know and I wouldn't want to enter a conversation about how many malicious exit nodes there are. I do use the Tor network uh, for research and um, I, I do tell people that it is a valid choice, uh, but what you brought up is absolutely a risk. Um, depending on where you are, you could configure Tor to use an exit node in a specific area. You can even configure an exit node particularly. So you can say, when I exit, I want to exit through this node. And Tor exit nodes are more or less public. There's even a tool that Tor maintains themselves, and it's called Exonerator. 
and if you put an IP into Exonerator, it will tell you whether it was a Tor exit node somewhere in the past. Um, I think it can check. The, the closest to it can check is like two days ago. And if two days ago it's an, it was an exit node, it's probably still an exit node, and you can probably exit through it if you trust it, of course. Mm, thanks for that. Um, we have a couple of other questions here. Um, okay, I'm going to read this question here, Alex. I don't know what this means. I am going to like phonetically read these words. Uh, so, so apologies if it's not relevant. I, um, I'm just going to read it. You tell me if it's... <laughs> So the question is this, are there cases where people embed slash stegno internet traffic into social media apps to bypass censorship? I don't know if that's a... Yeah, that... I know what that means. It okay. refers to steganography. Steganography is the practice of hiding information and other information. So for example, um, you can have a message made up of words, so just a string of text, and you hide it inside the JPEG, and you send the JPEG to somebody, and they know where in the JPEG you hid it, and they can recover it. Uh, there are obviously much more um, advanced stego steganographical techniques. There we go. I pronounced the long word. Go me. Um, I, I don't know of very concrete applications or networks that use steganography uh, to hide messages in social media. I have heard of this as well, and I have heard of it being proposed um, as, as sort of a, a censorship-resistant technique. But if you think about this in spirit, so you abstract away from steganography, this is already happening, right? There are countries that ban the use of certain words, uh, I'm not going to name him China, but you can, yeah, you can read the news and narrow it down pretty quickly. And there people have found ways to refer to things without saying the thing. And in spirit, that is, that achieves the same purpose as the, uh, as what you've mentioned. Um, so yeah, this, in, in spirit, this is already being done. Definitely. Great. Thanks. And um, this may be the last question, although I see somebody typing in the chat. Um, uh, so maybe the last question, maybe not. If it is the last question, I feel like it's a nice way to end the talk because it feels like a, like a, a, an all-encompassing question that maybe covers a lot of what we talked about. So this is from Eridus. Hi, Eridus. Good to see you. And Eridus is asking, sort of generally speaking then, what tools would you suggest? If you could just make a list of a couple tools uh, for people living in autocratic regimes that highly monitor and censor the internet, especially if these individuals are targeted. So maybe that's, that's Eridesa's question. Maybe a broader question would be, what would you recommend that everybody have in their laptop, on their desktop, just so that they can um, enjoy the internet uh, without having lots of folks seeing everything that they're doing? Uh, I hope everyone enjoys the internet and... Um... I hope we all contribute to keeping it open. Um, before I answer that question, I just want to very quickly again mention that it would be great if folks feel safe uh, running tests and contributing data to Uni and being curious about internet censorship. Protecting from it is definitely important and it affects our quality of life, but also being able to contribute to data about it is also super important because we need to be able to look at the state of things when they were still normal to be able to tell when things start going downhill, right? That being said, to answer the actual question, um, I would use Signal. 
uh, everywhere I can and with all the people that I can use it with at this point signal has a user experience that you really can't uh, um, criticize that much it has everything you need in the app um, if signal is blocked in your country signal has implemented proxies um, because of the recent uh, blockings in certain countries WhatsApp has also implemented proxies, but I would not recommend WhatsApp as the number one app. So I would recommend Signal. Um, aside from Signal, I would also recommend um, if you're doing any sort of research work that you want to keep separated from your general internet browsing, I would recommend uh, separating your browsers, um, never clicking on links that you, you don't know uh, who they're from or why they exist in your messages. I would recommend if you can use an antivirus to use an antivirus from time to time. It's not a huge mandate and it's not a lifesaver, but it is some security hygiene and it might catch something that you have overlooked. And when it does, it's priceless that you have it. Um, I would also recommend using a VPN if you can uh, or using Tor. Um, at this point, using Tor most of the time isn't that bad. It's pretty fast and it's definitely usable. Uh, keep in mind, though, that Tor wasn't necessarily made for you to use it for social media where you're going to log in with your identity anyway, because that puts data about you in the Tor network, um, which isn't tragic, of course, but if you want to hide your tracks, it also isn't ideal. So for your research and for checking out websites, checking out content that you don't necessarily know a lot about, Tor can be super useful. Um, I would also recommend things like uh, password managers. I would recommend using 2FA in every single place where 2FA is available for you. Um, most websites offer it right now. There's almost no excuse not to use it. And it does save us a lot of hassle because, you know, breaches will happen, leaks will happen, but at least there's another uh, thing standing between us and our accounts getting compromised. Um, and, and as somebody is saying, some websites are mandating to uh, MFA at this point. So, yeah, to sum up, Signal, um, VPN and Tor, if you can do it, some form of antivirus if you are comfortable using that. And um, if you can use Uni, please contribute data. It's going to make us all more informed about the state of the internet. Perfect. Thank you very much. Alex Stefanescu, thank you so much for joining. Former tech fellow here at Bellingcat, currently Python developer at the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. Thanks again so much for taking the time to share your knowledge and your experience with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you as well. It was so nice being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Stage Talk. If you'd like to catch a Stage Talk live and ask the guest questions, join the Bellingcat Discord server by visiting www.discord.gg forward slash Bellingcat. The music you've heard is titled 1983 by Ben Elson and is courtesy of Epidemic Sound.